caressed the dead velvet chest of George Best, you sweaty Brenda's. Welcome to the Blind Boy Podcast. You were spoilt rotten last week with two podcasts. I was quite happy with that one about The Last of Us, even though I was sucking corporate flute. Even my mother rang me up and said she enjoyed that podcast. She's in her 80s. She doesn't know what a video game is or how to use streaming services. She vaguely remembers Super Mario from my childhood. When I was seven years of age, I had an undescended testicle which required surgery. I don't know if uh, if they still do this, but when I was a child in school, just all of a sudden, every boy in the class is taken out of the class and you're made to go into a room with a nurse, into an empty classroom, and a nurse is just sitting there in a desk where the teacher is supposed to sit and no adult explains what's happening. No one explains what's happening. You just know that something strange, new and very serious is occurring and all the boys got to go to this classroom. And they don't bring you in one by one. They bring you in in groups. In groups of about four or five. And you have to turn your back while one of your friends is told to approach the nurse. And then something happens behind your back but you're not allowed to see what it is. But you know that whatever is happening behind your back, you're next. I realise now, they really went about this terribly. They really went about this quite badly. What was happening is the nurse comes to the school to check if all of the boys' testicles have descended or not. They don't tell you this, instead they do it as a surprise, because it's probably too awkward for the adults to explain to a group of seven-year-olds. So you're brought off to this classroom, with about four or five other boys, And you have to stare at the wall while they take one of your friends and do something behind you. And what they're actually doing is, the nurse is sitting there in the teacher's desk. There's an empty chair beside her. And then the boy has to climb onto the chair, pull his pants down. Then the nurse puts her hands on his testicles and asks him to cough. Like they spent months preparing us for first confession. Months. You're going to go into this confessional box you're going to meet a priest he's going to ask you these questions you have to confess your sins we're going to rehearse it you're going to wear a suit your family will be present there's bread and wine they don't do that with the day the nurse comes to the fucking school and feels your balls why is that one a surprise but what i remember is being brought to this classroom being told to stare at a wall well they got my friend christy and said christy come over here Now I couldn't see what was happening, I could only hear it from behind. And when Christy climbed up onto the chair and the nurse put her hand on his testicles and she said cough, he thought that she said off and then he jumped off the chair while she was holding his balls and started roaring and then I turned around and saw what was happening and Christy was bawling crying with his pants around his ankles and I'm seven, I'm fucking seven so I don't know what's going on. They pulled Christy's pants up, got him out of the classroom quickly, and I'm fucking next. Oh shit, what's happening here? So I had to climb up onto the chair, pull my pants around my ankles, and then the nurse felt my balls, and no one told me what was happening, no one told me why it was happening. An adult woman is feeling my balls and asking me to cough while I'm standing on a chair. So I got off the chair, and didn't think much of it really, because I was seven until a letter came in the door of my house about two weeks later and my parents looked very concerned 
So if you remember that process from school, I was the lad with the undescended testicle. The nurse had found that my testicle hadn't descended, so I had to get it surgically descended, and my parents had to explain to me, you have to go to hospital, and they're going to put you asleep and cut your balls open, which was quite a terrifying prospect. But you don't really think much about your balls when you're seven, you don't value them. They're just the funniest part of your body where piss probably comes from. But then they said, when you go for this procedure, this medical procedure, you're going to be sick for a couple of weeks afterwards, you won't be able to go to school. But if you go and do this thing, we'll buy you whatever you want. What present do you want as a reward for getting your balls cut open? And immediately, because I'm seven, I didn't give a shit about anyone cutting my balls open anymore. Because everybody in my classroom had a Nintendo except me. I used to go to other children's houses and talk to no one and play the Nintendo and be rude to people's parents when they were trying to talk to me because I wanted to play this Nintendo and then I'd have to leave and I'd have to go home and then continue the game of Super Mario Brothers in my head using plastic soldiers and red bricks that I found out the back garden. Now I didn't grow up in poverty but I grew up in a frugal household. There were eight of us. My parents had regular jobs. All of my basic needs were met. But a Nintendo in the early 90s, that was a luxury in the eyes of my parents. I was not getting any Nintendos for Christmas, but I fucking was now, because someone's going to cut my bollocks open. Well, here was my opportunity. I want a fucking Nintendo, I said. I probably didn't say I want a fucking Nintendo because I was seven, but I made it clear. Okay, if you're taking me to the hospital for someone to cut my balls open, I want a Nintendo. That's what I want. So my man and my dad had to agree that I was getting a Nintendo. And I was getting the one that came with Duck Hunt and Super Mario Brothers. And you know what? It actually worked. I had zero anxiety whatsoever about the fact that I was going to get an operation. I didn't care that someone was going to cut me open. I didn't care that I have a scar. Like I was born into a house with a bunch of teenage boys. All my brothers were older. When you're a teenager, you value your testicles a lot more than when you're a child. And whenever my parents would explain to my brothers the operation that I was going to have to have, I always remember them putting their hands in front of their fucking balls like they're on a penalty shootout. The idea and thought of me getting my balls sliced open for them was absolutely unthinkable. But I didn't give a fuck. Because all I was thinking about was Super Mario Brothers. It's all I cared about. It's all I spoke about. It's all I thought about. Even on the morning when I was about to get my operation, my father was crying. He was in tears, hugging me, telling me he loved me. Because he's thinking, they're going to cut my child's balls open. I'd hate to have my balls chopped open. And even when he was hugging me and saying, I love you so much, I love you so much, you're going to be fine. I didn't care. I'm like, are you going getting the Nintendo now? Are you getting it now? Because I'm going to be home later this evening after the operation. So you, you're getting the Nintendo now, yeah? Like what time did you check that they have the Nintendos? And I remember the job was given to one of my older brothers. He had to walk into town into Smith's Smith's toy store, I think it was, 
and his job was to buy the Nintendo and I wasn't happy until I saw him walking off. And then I went for my operation and all I vividly remember is going underneath. I do remember that. I remember going under anaesthetic and the experience of it being like being pulled underneath water. And then I woke up and I had stitches in my balls and it wasn't painful but it was very itchy and my whole family came to visit me in the hospital and everyone was like oh you poor thing you poor thing and they had tears in their eyes because I'm a little seven year old child and little seven year old child shouldn't have operations that's a very sad thing I didn't give a fuck I didn't care I didn't I didn't take in their grief their tears their sadness I didn't give a fuck Where's the, where's the Nintendo? When do I go home? And when I go home, is the Nintendo there? Will I be playing it? And I remember getting home because it was, it was an operation where I had to go, I had to go under and I had a hernia as well. So they had to cut my testicle and also cut the bit in my belly. But it was an operation whereby I didn't have to stay overnight. So I got home. I probably went in for the operation at about 9 a.m., and would have been home at 5 or 6 p.m. that evening. And the fucking Nintendo was there. And my brothers had it set up. And just when I was about to turn the fucking thing on. And play Super Mario Brothers 3. That's when like. The fatigue of everything that I'd been through that day hit me. And I remember not being able to keep my eyes open. The anesthetic. The little painkillers I would have been on. It all came upon me at once and I couldn't keep my eyes open. And I remember fighting the sleep, going, I want to play Super Mario, I want to play it so bad. And I just knocked out. And then the next day I woke up and then my testicles were sore. Then I realised someone's just cut your balls open. But still, regardless of that pain, regardless of the fatigue, I was seven. So the childhood adrenaline for the Nintendo was greater than any of that. And the job of my family became, don't let the cunt run. Don't let him run, don't let him walk. Because if the cunt runs, his balls will burst open. The stitches will burst open. Don't let him run. And I'm seven, so I'm like, I want to run downstairs and play the Nintendo. It's what's happening. But I couldn't really walk. And if I did run, my testicles would explode. My testicles would explode. That's what, that's what would happen. You can't run when you've had surgery on your testicles. So I had to be carried around the house nude by my parents or by my brothers. That's how I had to be. That's my first experience of a video game. Being carried naked to a Nintendo. And I couldn't wear underpants or pants for weeks because I had stitches on my testicles. And then <laughs> all my older brothers used to just have to come into the house and I was there like Donald Duck with a t-shirt, fully naked, fully naked from the waist down. Big swollen purple bollocks looking like a rat's brain with stitches in them and soaters and blood dripping down my thigh. Playing Super Mario, not giving a shit. Why did I bring this up? Oh yeah, that, that's my mother's only context for video games. So I'm surprised that she enjoyed that episode last week about The Last of Us. Because her only context for video games is when I was seven and playing Super Mario all the time with my bollocks out. And I'm glad I got that operation because 
you don't want to have undescended you, if you if you have undescended testicles as a child you need to get it sorted out because if you don't and then your balls drop like in puberty then you're in trouble it can result in infertility I think there's a much higher risk of testicular cancer so thank you to the nurse who identified that when I was a child when I was standing up in that chair and I don't have any bad memories of that of what should be a kind of disturbing unhappy childhood experience that should be a frightening experience of going to hospital and getting surgery at the age of seven I don't all I think of is playing Super Mario Brothers for the first time that's all I think of the joy of that completely superseded any pain and it also taught me a valuable lesson in tolerating frustration and pain and suffering in order to achieve a greater goal however the memory of going under anaesthetic and seeing the three the surgeon's head above me and two other heads above me and feeling like I'm going underneath water that did lead to a lifelong fear of being abducted by aliens and I had to sleep with the light on and I had terrible sleep as a child because I was terrified of being abducted by aliens so I think maybe some some trauma from that experience specifically the operation sublimated itself into a fear of being abducted by aliens well I'd like to speak this week about synchronicity Jungian synchronicity which is something I've brought up multiple times on this podcast synchronicity is meaningful coincidence sometimes it can feel supernatural but I don't look at it as supernatural when a coincidence happens in my life and I can extract a sense of meaning and this meaning results in personal growth or insight so something happened this week the weather's been ferociously cunty and it's pure it's global warming weather I know it is because I've been around three decades and I am seeing new weather phenomenon that I'm not hugely familiar with so what made last week unique was we would get days where the temperature is like minus four so it's fucking freezing really really cold and because it's so cold everything becomes frozen there's this beautiful crunchy layer of frost on everything and it's beautiful i loved it i loved walking around in those days and hearing the crust of the frost underneath my feet it was magnificent but then what happens is the next day is like one or two degrees so it's just warm enough for the ice from the day before to begin to thaw but not fully thaw and you get a layer of ice on all the footpaths which i refer to as sweaty ice because I've never seen it before sweaty ice the footpaths are covered with this see-through glassy ice that is slowly melting but not melting away and it's incredibly dangerous unbelievably dangerous multiple people in Limerick slipped last week I know two people who were injured because of the ice last week and this was really pissing me off because I've fallen in love with running again. I'm running three, four times a week. I'm loving it. I'm not injured anymore. My body is able for it. 
I fucking, I, I, I crave my runs as if they're a type of food. And it is food, it's spiritual food. I get a legitimate psychological and spiritual sustenance from running. So I was very pissed off last week when I'd gotten into my running gear and I was all ready to do a lovely 10 kilometer run. I'd gotten up nice and early to do it. And then when I got outside the house, I'm like, this isn't going to happen. It's not possible. Because I tried to walk a little bit up the road. And walking even 100 metres, I almost fell four times. So I said, forget about it. If you run, this will be a really silly decision. You're going to hurt yourself. Don't do it. So I said, fuck it, I can't run today. And I got a taxi into my office instead. But then the next day, I was like, okay, I'm going to run tomorrow. I'm going to run the next day. Same thing. I got up, put my running clothes on, was ready to go into the office and it was just as bad. And I felt angry and I said, fuck that. You're going to go for your run. You're going to figure out how this is going to happen, but you're doing your run today. So I got a big giant pair of socks and I put them over my running shoes and the socks went over the running shoes and I was able to run on ice, completely sure footed. Now I was running into work, but also I needed to be in town because I had a dentist appointment that day. So I needed to be in town, but I could have gotten a taxi. But something was driving me to run today. I was like, no, I must run. I need to do this. So I put the socks on over my running shoes. I looked like a fucking idiot, man. I looked like a warlock or a goblin because the socks were too big. And then they got mad pointy at the end. They were grey socks. I looked like a middle-aged Sonic the Hedgehog. But also I took the opportunity to mindfully do it as an exercise in social anxiety. I was worried about looking like a fool. I was worried about looking like a silly man with pointy sock shoes. I was worried about other people seeing me and staring and pointing. The themes of social anxiety. So I embraced it. I said, fuck it. If I wear socks on my shoes, it harms nobody. It keeps me safe, keeps me sure-footed. I get to meet my needs, my needs being going for a run. And if people do stare, so what? Put yourself into that situation. Put yourself in a situation where people look at you funny because you look strange. Sit with that fear. Sit with how comfortable it feels. And from that, you'll overcome a little bit of social anxiety. And that's what I did. And I had the most amazing run. It was beautiful. I was listening to Sepulchora. I went down to the river. And the water was still like glass. And there was a two inch thick layer of white fog over the meniscus of the water. And the swans were reflecting sunlight back at me. And I could hear what their feathers looked like. Everything was silent and still and perfect and I experienced the vitality of being alive. People did stare at me. Multiple people looked at me like, look at that fucking lunatic with big pointy socks on his feet. And they gave me that strange look, that uncomfortable look, that look that's almost disgust. The look of social rejection, that look that you're terrified of if you're sensitive to social anxiety. And I ran through it and said, I don't care, because I'm having a lovely run. Someone else's opinion about the socks on my shoes is none of my business. Also, 
they're the fucking idiots because they're out trying to walk in the ice and probably falling over. Everybody should have been wearing socks on their feet. I was the one with the right idea. But as I'm running and I'm experiencing the high of it and the mindfulness and the joy of being made run and the blood pumping around my body and the wonderful feelings that come from running, as I'm doing it, I take a detour on the route that I'd normally take and I go through an area where there's a public park, which isn't my usual route. I went there because I was enjoying this run so much I wanted to make it a little bit longer. So I ran through this park and as I'm running I look on the ground and I see all these stones and these stones are placed there. There was about a hundred of them and they had people's names on them. And then I decide to stop the run and I stop to look at the stones and then I realise, oh these are little memorial stones and these names are all people who've died. And it has the dates when they died. And then I look and look and look. And I see my dad's name. And I see the date. And the date is the 19th of January. And that was that day. And I'm like holy fuck it's my dad's anniversary. He died today. I'd forgotten. I'd completely forgotten it was my dad's anniversary. Now I'm here in a park. Staring at a stone in the ground that has his name on it. And his date of birth and death. And I don't even know why it's here. Now it turns out my brother had it done months ago. This park were offering people opportunities to have a loved one's name put on a stone. And it'd be put in the ground in the park. And my brother had it done because he thought it would be a nice thing to do. But I didn't fucking know that. And what I had there was this beautiful, still, silent moment. Of reflection and inner contemplation. Which felt spiritual. And one part of my brain was going, oh my God. In a supernatural sense, my dad's ghost led me today to this stone on the day of his death. Like there's a lot of coincidences going on there. Loads. I was thinking, this strong desire I had to do this run today. This, to put socks over my fucking feet. To do this run at all costs. And the fact that on this run I took a detour through this park where I never normally go. And it all happened on his fucking anniversary and I didn't even know. But the thing is none of that really matters. What matters is the meaning that I took from it. That's the point of Jungian synchronicity. It's the personal meaning that I take from these coincidences. And the real meaning I took from that was... I just got this sense of gratitude, this sense of gratefulness... That I'm back loving my runs. That I'm experiencing really good mental health for the first time in two years. Good mental health to the point that I'm able to enjoy running and experience the runner's high. And I got to take a moment out to reflect on my dad. Because... He died like 16 or 17 years ago. And when that amount of time passes, you kind of, it's, it's normal to forget that it's the day your dad died. It's, it's normal to forget that. But if I hadn't gone into that park and stopped and reflected and taken in the air into my lungs and had a lovely mindful moment, I would have just forgotten. Now, the reason I'm talking about synchronicity is I tend to have more moments of synchronicity that is meaningful coincidences in my life 
when my mental health is quite good. I don't believe synchronicity is supernatural. I don't think it's something outside of my control. Synchronicity for me is how my brain creates stories and patterns throughout my day that bring me meaning. And this happens when my mental health is good. And my mental health is quite good at the moment because I've been going to therapy and I've been working on myself and I'm really in in quite a good place compared to where I would have been maybe two months ago before I started therapy. What is mental health? Mental health, quite simply, is the ability to emotionally regulate. The ability to return to a base of calm. That's all it is. Life is stressful. Bad things happen. Upsetting things happen. Despite all of this, can you return to a state of calm even though something upsets you? And that's good mental health for me. Let's take my running journey as an example. I woke up, I really wanted to run and the weather wouldn't let me. I felt disappointment, I felt anger and I felt unfairness. When my mental health isn't good, what happens? Those feelings of anger, disappointment and unfairness, I react to these feelings. I react to these feelings, I take them on board and then they influence my thoughts. It's too fucking frosty outside. This always fucking happens. Why can't I get a break? I just want to fucking run. Why can't I get a break? Now I'm angry. I'm disappointed. I feel anger and disappointment. I feel that everything is unfair. I don't go into work. I cancel my trip to the dentist. I stay in the house. I do fuck all with my day. And I spiral with negative behaviours throughout the day. That's poor mental health. What did I do instead? I opened the door. I felt disappointed. I felt angry. I felt that it was unfair, that it was frosty outside. But I noticed these emotions. And I noticed what was happening. And I recognised that's outside of my control. Bad weather and frosty weather. That's outside of my control. I don't control this. What do I control? I control my attitude towards it. So I step back from the emotions... I don't react to them. I feel calm. And because I feel calm, what am I doing now? Problem solving. I calmly ask myself, what are my needs? My needs are, I'd really like to go for a run to get into my office. Okay, well, how can we make that happen? Now that I'm calm, I'm thinking creatively. I'm using all of my brain. I'm not emotional so that I don't have my full critical faculties. And now I get to use creativity and calmness and I go, let's put a pair of socks on over your shoes. Let's try that. What's the worst that can happen? People might laugh at you. Yeah, they might and that might be unpleasant. But you know what? I'm feeling calm now. And I can notice that that fear, the fear of people laughing at me, that's actually not real. That's a prediction about the future. It hasn't happened yet. How about we challenge it instead? Yeah, let's challenge it. So that's what I did. I responded creatively in the moment to the suffering that life presented me and I overcame it because I was emotionally regulated. I didn't react to my emotions. I noticed them and said, here's a problem. I have a choice around how I react to this problem. Like over the pandemic when my mental health was really bad and I used to go for runs. I used to be going for a run 
and I'd be experiencing anger and sadness and unfairness and having negative thoughts. And then I'd get to a zebra crossing. And when I get to the zebra crossing, cars are supposed to stop. But sometimes they don't. They don't give a shit. They just go through. And if a car didn't stop for me at a zebra crossing while I was on my run, I'd take it personally. And I'd continue my run furiously. How does that person think they are to not stop for me at a zebra crossing? Didn't they see me? What's wrong with me? Do I look pathetic? Do I look like the type of person that you don't stop for at a zebra crossing? And then my run is ruined. And I'm not making contact with my environment. I'm not mindfully looking at the wonderful nature around me. Or noticing anything about my run because I'm stuck in my head reacting to emotions. And last week when I went on that beautiful run from a point of emotional regulation I experienced everything mindfully I went into that park because I was in the present moment when I'm in that park all I care about is what's happening in the park I'm not worrying about the future or worrying about the past I notice stones on the ground they interest me I feel creative I feel curious about my environment I feel safe I stop and look at the stones, I contemplate. I do it all in a very mindful here and now fashion. I see my dad's name looking back at me. All of these things happen and they happen because I'm emotionally regulated. I have the ability to be calm enough to explore my environment, to look at everything around me and take it in and not be distracted by negative thoughts and emotions. And from that... I get better stories. I get better stories about my day because that's how we interact with our environment. We create little stories. Little stories of synchronicity and coincidence and patterns that we stick together to create personal meaning. All of that happened because my mental health was in check. And to bring it back to attachment theory, what I did there is no different to a toddler. Adults have emotional regulation. An adult has the ability to be calm within themselves. The ability to be emotionally regulated and calm. Toddlers don't have this. Toddlers don't have the emotional maturity to self-regulate yet. What a toddler has instead is their relationship with their caregiver. But a toddler's relationship with their caregiver is how they develop emotional regulation. When a toddler looks around for, I'm going to say mammy because it's easy, but it could be any caregiver. I'm going to say mammy. When a little toddler is in a room by itself and it looks around for mammy, and mammy's there, but then she goes out to the kitchen for a while. So the toddler starts crying. It feels insecure because it's like, I can't see my ma. I don't know where she is. Has she abandoned me? That toddler is worried. That toddler is anxious, frightened, scared of being abandoned. That toddler by itself in the room, when the ma is outside in the kitchen, that toddler isn't playing with its toys. It's crying and screaming and looking around and being in a state of unease. That's how we as adults feel when we're not emotionally regulated. But then the mammy comes back in from the kitchen, sits down and the toddler feels okay again. The toddler feels safe and secure and loved. My mammy is there, I can see her, she came back, I haven't been abandoned everything's okay what does the toddler do now they're happy they're smiling they're playing with their toys and they're curious about their environment and they're moving around and looking and playing 
as adults, that's emotional regulation. That's the calmness that you feel when your mental health is in check. You explore your environment. Your environment isn't frightening. You engage in playful activities. You're curious about everything. You take everything in. You get that curiosity that toddlers have. So that's what we as adults can achieve with emotional regulation. But instead of, where is my mammy? Why isn't my mammy here to hug me? Is my mammy hugging me? As adults, it's not that. It's, how am I with me today? Do I love me? Am I hugging me today? Do I accept who I am today? That's self-compassion, self-forgiveness, recognizing our fallibility, accepting who we are, accepting the intrinsic value that we're born with, not comparing myself to anybody else, not telling myself that I'm better than somebody else, not telling myself that somebody else is better than me, which is the journey that I've been on since I've been back in therapy. And through practicing that, which is difficult, I can experience my emotions authentically and then achieve emotional regulation, calmness. And that run I had last week, that was an emotionally regulated run. I wasn't emotionally reactive. And I experienced my environment in a curious and present way. And as a result, I got all these meaningful coincidences from it which stitched together in my brain as quite a nice story about my day. And I can remember every bit of that run and I can smell every bit of it and I can see it because I did it all presently. And last year when my mental health was very, very bad and I went off to Spain to try and write for like a week or I went to Portugal to try and write, I can barely remember any of those trips. I can barely remember them because I was so stressed and so living every moment worried about the future or worried about the past or experiencing anger I don't have memories of entire weeks in different countries last year because I didn't I wasn't present for any of it I was physically present but mentally and emotionally I wasn't present at all and because of that I didn't take any meaning any stories which is something that we all need to achieve a sense of meaning in our life. Because I've said it before, I don't believe in, in happiness. You can have fleeting moments of happiness, but I don't believe in happiness as, an, as a state. I don't think that exists. When you think back to moments of happiness, it wasn't happiness. What it was was moments of meaning. And you achieve meaning when you live your day emotionally regulated. Bad things happen, good things happen, but you respond to them all with critical thinking rather than being emotionally reactive. And this isn't even what this week's podcast is about. So I finished my run and then I went in for a shower at work because in my office I've got a shower. So when I run into work I have a shower. Now just to further illustrate this point, I've been coming into this office for about a year. When I used to run into this office a year ago, it used to take me about 20 minutes to have a shower. Why? Because my head was in the future and in the past. I was so anxious, so worried, so angry, that washing myself in the shower took a long time. I might have been in there rubbing suds on myself, 
with the water coming down off the faucet. But really what I was doing is I was having an imaginary argument in my head with someone who didn't stop for me at a zebra crossing. I was furious and angry, thinking to myself what I'd say to that person, thinking about running after their car down the road and saying, how dare you not stop for me, and clenching my jaw and clenching my fists and really experiencing real anger for something that isn't even happening. And that shit will take 20 minutes. That, that's how you end up spending 20 minutes in a shower going, is that the time? The fuck was I doing? And then experiencing shame because it's like, for fuck's sake, you can't even have a shower without it taking 20 minutes, you useless cunt. That's emotional dysregulation. That's, that's what it's like to have poor mental health. That's how I've been for a while. Now when I have a shower in my office, it takes six minutes because what am I doing? Washing my balls. That's it. I'm cleaning myself, enjoying the wonderful fucking hot water and my magnificent new shower gel that smells like Turkish delight. Showering in the here and now. So last week I finished my fucking shower. Then I go to my dentist appointment, right? I go into the dentist. They clean my teeth. I've nothing to report from that experience. But as I come out of the dentist's office, quite close to the dentist's office, there's an old antique shop. Now because I've had a wonderful run, and I had that gorgeous experience in the park with that stone with my dad's name on his anniversary because of all these wonderful, meaningful things that have happened to me that morning I don't walk past this antique shop I don't not notice the antique shop because my head's up my arse I fucking see the antique shop and I say fuck it, I'll stick my head into the antique shop, will I? I've never been in there before so I do I go into the antique shop and it's full of antiques, old mahogany clocks and dressers and a stuffed pheasant and bone china and little cabinets and I walk over to the little cabinet and I see a dagger in the cabinet. This strange little dagger with a black handle. And then I look closer and it's not a dagger, it's a letter opener but it looks like a dagger. And it just has a little sticker underneath it that's handwritten and it says 1850s. So I asked the man in the shop, can I see this dagger please? No, I wasn't going to buy it, but I was curious, the dagger looked interesting. So he opened the cabinet and he let me hold the dagger, which was a little letter opener. It looked gorgeous. It was really small in that way that all things are small. Like that's what I love about like old cutlery and stuff from 150 years ago. You hold it in your hand and you get a sense that people were physically smaller. You know, like the person whose hands this was designed for was a slightly smaller person. But as I'm holding this little letter opener, dagger, in my hand, I notice that, like, the the handle of it is kind of strange. It feels like, like plastic or rubber. But I'm like, this is the 1850s. Plastic, plastic wasn't invented in the 1850s. Is, maybe the blade is old. From the 1850s but the handle is new so i asked your man in the shop i said well, why is the handle it was black the handle was fully black and it had like i think the design was like a stark some type of bird and i said what why does this handle feel like plastic and he says that's not plastic at all it's a material called gutta parcha it's like an old type of rubber so i hand him back the fucking 
the letter opener and I leave the shop. And the word gutta parcha sticks in my head because it's so fucking weird. The fuck is gutta parcha? I'm thinking did that cunt in the shop make it up? Doesn't even sound like a word. How can a handle be made of something I've never heard of before in my life? Gotta parcha. And then the rest of my day. Gotta parcha. Gotta parcha. So naturally I have to start finding out what the fuck gotta parcha is. And that's what this week's podcast is about. Before I tell you what gotta parcha is. I found out that it was a Malaysian word. It's a word that comes from Malaysia. Now the other word in the English language that's Malaysian that we use quite a lot is ketchup so ketchup is a Malaysian word I think it comes from a colonial times in Malaysia and Southeast Asia they had different condiments things that would have been a bit like fish sauce and slowly but surely this turned into what we call ketchup that has tomatoes in it but today the most widespread word in the English language that has roots in Malaysian is ketchup. It's ubiquitous. We use ketchup, the name, all the time. Most of us say it maybe once or twice a day. What if I told you that 150 years ago, gotta parcha, which is also a Malaysian word, was as common as the word ketchup. That gotta parcha was so ubiquitous in society. We used it as much as we used the word ketchup, this other Malaysian word. So I did some deep dive research and I have a wonderful hot take for you about gotta parcha. But first, let's have a little ocarina pause. Now I'm in my office so I don't have the ocarina, but what I do have is the Puerto Rican guayro. And luckily, after finding the thing, the little scraper thing that goes on the guayro, which was lost for several months. So I'm going to play this... Puerto Rican Guayro from the Bronx that a listener sent me and you'll hear an advert for something while I'm doing this it's quite a pleasant noise Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello, this is an advertisement for better help. I have frequently attended therapy for the past 20 years when I experience anxiety or depression or when I have difficulty naming and labeling my emotions, identifying my emotions 
I often seek the help of a professional therapist to improve my emotional literacy. I've attended therapy in person and I've attended therapy online. If online therapy is something you might be interested in, give better help a try. It's entirely online, it's convenient, flexible and it's suited to your schedule. All you gotta do is fill out a brief questionnaire and you get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. So give it a go. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash blindbuy today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash blindbuy. Beautiful instrument. Made from a gourd. Fantastic piece of kit. Thank you to whoever sent that to me. From New York in the Bronx. Support for this podcast comes from you, the listener, via the Patreon page. Patreon.com forward slash the Blind Boy Podcast. This podcast is my full-time job. This is how I earn a living. I adore making this podcast. I love it. But if it brings you solace, comfort, distraction, joy, whatever the fuck has you listening to this podcast, please consider paying me for the work that I do. All I'm looking for is the price of a pint or a cup of coffee once a month. That's it. That's how you directly support this podcast. Now, if you can't afford that, don't worry about it. You can listen for free because the person who is a patron is paying for you to listen for free. So everybody gets a podcast and I get to earn a living. Patreon.com forward slash the blind boy podcast. Also, it keeps it keeps the podcast independent. Last week I did a sponsored podcast, which I'm up to nearly 400 episodes now and I've only done two because that particular sponsorship was like the incredibly rare occasion where the thing that's sponsoring the podcast is also legitimately what I'd probably do a podcast on anyway if it wasn't being sponsored. But 99% of the time, advertising fucking ruins podcasts the way that it's ruined television and ruined radio. I want to keep this podcast 100% independent. I want to show up each week and speak about what I'm legitimately passionate about. I want to make work that I can actually stand over, that I'd listen to if I wasn't me. I don't want to make stuff just so it gets listens. I don't want to platform pricks because it's controversial and that gets listens. I want to make the podcast that I want to make, that I love making. So keeping it independent is what makes that possible. Patreon allows me full creative freedom. But also you can support podcasts, not just mine, any independent podcast, by liking the podcast, leaving reviews of that podcast, sharing it on your social media, telling a friend about it. These are all the ways that you can support independent podcasts. Just a couple of gigs, some gig announcements. Before, as usual, I don't have the gig page up. I know right off the bat, what one do I definitely have to promote? The TLT Theatre in Drogheda. I'm going to start with this one, right? Because this is the only one of my upcoming gigs where the promoters are on my case. Because I'm guessing because it's in Drogheda. Drahada's a bit like Limerick. It's a tough place to put on gigs. Like Limerick's a very difficult place to do gigs in. So I'm in the TLT Theatre in Drahada 
on the 1st of April. And if you're around Drogheda, come along to that because it'll be good crack. And then what have I got before that? Everything else seems to be alright. I did Waterford there at the weekend. I had a magnificent podcast in Waterford at the weekend. Speaking to Michael Harding. I can't wait to show you that. Oh, it was a great chat. Um, Killarney is sold out. Cork Opera House on Wednesday the 15th of February. few tickets left for that. Then what have we got? Belfast in March on the 4th of March. Waterfront. There's a few tickets left for that. Vicker Street, Wednesday the 22nd and Friday the 24th. Right? I think the Friday is sold out, but there's tickets going for Wednesday the 22nd up in Vicker Street. And then I'm in Canada in April. I'm taking it handy on the gigs. So back to the theme of this week's podcast. I was in an antique shop holding a letter opener and the handle of the letter opener which was like a strange black plastic from the 1850s was a material I'd never heard of in my entire life called gutta percha and from the reading that I've done gutta percha appears to be almost as important as oil or petrol in terms of its impact on society and where we are today Now, I'm not saying that's a good thing. Like, the discovery of oil and petrol has been horrendous for the fucking environment and global warming. It's been fucking horrendous. But for the advancement of what we call today's society, oil and petrol were very, very important to get us to where we are now. Well, this gutta parcha stuff is up there with oil and petrol. Except no one has ever fucking heard of it. It has disappeared off the face of the earth. Gutta parcha is a naturally occurring plastic that comes from the trunks of trees that grow in Malaysia and parts of Southeast Asia. So it's like, you know, rubber. Rubber comes from trees. Well, gutta parcha is like a plastic that comes from trees. Now, the people in Malaysia have been using it for fucking years, hundreds of years, and they were using it for the handles of knives to make cutlery for everyday household use but the area around Southeast Asia Malaysia Borneo parts of Vietnam parts of the Philippines by the 1800s these areas had become colonised by the British the French and the Dutch now plastic hadn't been invented yet plastic is a byproduct of the petrol industry It'd be like another 60 or 70 years before plastic was invented. So in the 1800s, when the English in particular were in Malaysia and they saw the people there using this magical substance, plastic that flows from the bark of a tree and you can mould it into any shape you want and then it goes hard. This revolutionised household objects in Europe And in the 1800s, everything you can think of now that's made from plastic was made from this gutta parcha stuff, which they got from trees in Malaysia, this naturally occurring plastic. Like, here's a report from 1862 about this gutta parcha shit. Almost every species of toy is made from this gum. The furniture, the decorations and even the covering of our houses are constructed from it. And we make the soles of our boots and shoes from it. 
and the linings for our water cisterns. We use it for pipes, ear trumpets. Like in the 1860s, there was even a slang word where you would call someone old gutta parcha. If you were referring to someone as being common, you'd call them old gutta parcha. There was a substance that everything was made out of and it just disappeared and we've never heard of it. And when I held that little dagger in the antique shop, I'm like, what the fuck is this plastic? That's what it was. It was this gutta parcha. Now, when I say that gutta parcha was important as petrol or as important as oil in getting civilization to where it is right now, it wasn't because of what gutta parcha did for making cutlery or making knives. The British Empire itself or the Dutch fucking empire or the French empire. Western colonization in the 1800s, which was the heyday of colonization, that wouldn't have expanded the way it did without gutta parcha and I'll explain why. So the world that we live in today was shaped by colonization that occurred from about the 1500s onwards. And let's just take Britain as an example. The British Empire was fucking massive, the largest empire that ever existed. And colonization at its core, of which I'm not a fucking fan of because Ireland was colonized, colonization is when one country decides we're going to take over another country. We're going to call it ours. We're going to kill as many of the people there as possible. The ones that are left will be our servants and subjects. And we're going to use this colony to completely extract all of its natural resources to benefit our country. And that's what the British Empire is. That's why the British Empire was so damaging and so evil. The British Empire did that with huge parts of the world. It colonised and used the oceans to do it. But Gotta Parcha, this little weird plastic from a tree in Malaysia, is what solidified the British Empire. It's what solidified its chokehold on all of its colonies and what ultimately made it as powerful as it became. Here's how. Imagine a world where, like, there's no fucking telephones. There's nothing. Like, Britain is this small island in Europe, yet it colonised India, Australia, America. How does a tiny country maintain power on the other side of the world when it takes fucking ages for information to travel between those two places. Like even in like the 1600s or the 1700s, if something happens in London and they want someone in Scotland to find out about it, you had to do horseback and the message would have to leave on horse by London and make its way up to Scotland and that could take a day or even more from a horse to get from London to Scotland. So now think of like Australia. In 1789, the first ship left England to go to Australia in May 1789. That ship didn't get to Australia until January 1788. It took the best part of a year for a ship to get from England to Australia. So how does England centrally control Australia as part of the empire if it takes nearly a year to get there? And those colonists that would have arrived in Australia from England... In, this, in the late 1780s. Like the French Revolution happened. They mightn't have heard about the French Revolution. 
for like a year after it happened because that's how long it took that piece of information to get to where they were. Like how does Britain colonize somewhere like India, this huge continent? What happens if in India there's an uprising, there's a rebellion and the Indians say, no more Brits, we don't want to be a colony anymore. If that happens, it takes like three months for Britain to find out that there was an uprising and then another three months to send help. So that's six months. How do you operate an empire like that? But that used to happen quite frequently in the early days of colonisation. Like the thing with fucking Ireland, like the British colonised us for 800 fucking years. Our entire history is uprising after uprising after uprising that was brutally crushed because we happened to live next door to the Brits. So when the Brits colonised Ireland, if there was an uprising, they'd hear about it in a day or two and they'd respond to it in another couple of days. So colonising Ireland was easier because information travelled quicker. But the farther the colony was from the country doing the colonising, the greater chance that country had at fighting back and holding on to power because it would simply take too long for the information to get back to the colonising country. You're relying upon horseback and ships to convey information. Now there were ways around this. Like how do you communicate information across the long distance when electricity doesn't exist? Well they used to use signals like a lighthouse for example. A lighthouse with a big torch can communicate information across a long distance visually. Or they used to have a system called semaphores. So in Australia for instance which would have been Van Diemen's land at the time how would the colonists in Van Diemen's land communicate information across the colonies over really long distances? And how did they do this faster than horseback? They used to set up semaphore stations. Imagine like a, like a, a big lighthouse or a big windmill on land and at the top of it are like these things that look like sails that you can move. So over distances of hundreds and hundreds of miles, they would set up semaphore stations along the way, these huge windmills, and they'd literally like send text messages one letter at a time over thousands of miles. So one semaphore station might make the sails look like an F, and then the other semaphore station in the distance would have a fucking a telescope and he'd look and go oh it says F over there so then he'd make his semaphore station say F and then the other semaphore station a few hundred miles in the distance is looking at that with a telescope and they would literally send a text message which might take a day to write using these weird windmills across thousands of miles and this was faster in Australia than using a horse in the early 1800s of course, the Native Americans had smoke signals. That was a way of communicating across distances. Indigenous people in Africa would use drums and sound as a way to communicate information across distances. But by the 1800s, as the empires of the Western nations grew, maintaining power became difficult because the farther away your colony is, the longer it takes information to come home if something goes wrong. So this was a huge problem for the fucking colonists. And this is where Gutta Parcha comes in to save the day for the pricks. With the invention of the telegraph. 
the telegraph was the first type of electronic communication. So in the 1840s, the telegraph started to be used. The telegraph was a way to communicate information using electricity over a cable, over a wire cable. And they would communicate this information using Morse code. So little beeps that could be understood as language. So for the first time ever, human civilization had a way to communicate faster than the speed of a horse or faster than the speed of a boat. Effectively using electricity to communicate at the speed of light. Almost instant communication. So the great empires put telegraphs fucking everywhere over land. Every city over land was connected with wires. And now this meant the colonial powers had a massive technological advantage over who they were colonising. The colonial powers could now communicate, not instantly, but really quickly across long distances. If there was a rebellion, whatever the fuck, they could find out really quickly and deal with it. This improved commerce, business, colonisation rapidly expanded around the world. As soon as the telegraph was invented and the colonial powers could communicate with quick speed. But there was a problem. This is fine over land. You can have a telegraph pole going thousands and thousands and thousands of miles over land as a wire. But what happens when you reach the coast? You can't get a wire to go all the way across the sea. What do you do now? You start to invent underwater cables. But this is the 1800s. How do you get a cable made of wire to send electricity under the fucking ocean? How is that possible? Electricity and water don't mix. Wire and water doesn't mix. They tried everything. They tried getting the electric cables and wrapping them in leather, wrapping them in hemp. But nothing really worked to make electricity travel through a wire underwater. And this is where Gotta Parcha comes in. Because that's what fucking worked. So now this weird little plastic that was coming from Malaysia out of these trees that had previously been used for the handles of knives and cutlery and household goods. This was now the only product that could insulate a telegraph wire that could travel underneath the ocean. So by the 1850s, the British Empire in particular started sending telegraph wires all over the world to every single part of its empire. Now, the British could contact Australia with Morse code almost instantly. In 1859, the most important underwater cable was laid. This was the transatlantic underwater cable. Now, Europe and America could communicate instantly. And this was laid in Valencia, Valencia in Ireland. Valencia down in Kerry. Now, this was important in 1859. This was as important as the moon landing. Like, if you go down to Valencia and Kerry, there's like a little museum there for the first transatlantic cable. Like, 1859 isn't that long ago. Like, the famine was the 1840s. If something happened in America in the 1840s, we didn't hear about it in Europe until about a month later. That was the only way for information to get from Europe to America. So when the transatlantic cable was being laid in Valencia in 1859, there were parties on either side. One, one part was started in Valencia and it was going to end up in Newfoundland, which is off Canada. 
this was being treated like the moon landing at the time, it was that important. And what made it possible? God aparcha. This giant ship left Ireland with a huge long spool of electrical wire that was going across the Atlantic Ocean. And every centimetre of it was covered in gutta parcha, the only substance known to man at the time that could insulate electricity underwater. And what really drove telegraphs were uprisings. The British Empire was getting massive. Africa, Asia, fucking everywhere. And it was having trouble trying to stop uprisings, trying to stop the people that were being colonised wanting independence. And they soon realised if there's ever a rebellion, it doesn't matter where it is, it can be in fucking South Africa. If we have a telegraph that goes straight to London, we'll know about that uprising instantly. We'll fucking deal with it instantly. And we'll crush it and we'll maintain colonial power that way. And they started doing it and it worked. So the Brits, they made this thing called the Red Line, which was a uniquely British telegraph system that reached every single part of the British Empire and at no point did it cross any territory that wasn't in the British Empire. So they had full control over the flow of information in the Empire instantaneously. And that's what caused the British Empire to become so huge and so powerful and to have such a technological advantage over information. God Aparcha made that fucking possible. Like think of the 1916 rising in Ireland. Ireland's great attempt at getting independence in 1916. Why do you think the leaders of 1916 chose the GPO? What, what was so special about the General Post Office in Dublin? Why that building? Why do you want to seize that building? Because if you seize the fucking GPO, you control the flow of electronic information that goes to London. There were switchboards, I believe, in the GPO, which controlled... The, tel- the early telephone system and the telegraph system and how Ireland communicated with the rest of the world. So the leaders of the GPO were hoping we do the rising and we declare Ireland's independence in this building and then we use the telegraph system and the telephone system to tell the rest of the world before the Brits try and stop us. It was an information decision, a flow of information decision. James Connolly and Pierce were thinking if we can tell the rest of the world that Ireland is independent, they might recognise it in the context of World War I, and then the Brits are in a bit of a pickle. None of this would have happened without Godaparcha. None of it would have happened. But here's the thing about Godaparcha. So it's this naturally occurring plastic that came from a tree that grew in certain parts of Southeast Asia. But it wasn't like copper that you could dig out of the ground or get from a mine. The thing with God Aparcha was there was only so many trees and you needed an adult tree that took 20 or 30 years to grow and out of this huge giant tree you might only get one litre of God Aparcha. Now this was grand when they were just making handles for knives and cups but when the British Empire and the Dutch Empire and the Belgians and the French were laying telegraphs all over the world and needed to coat these thousands and thousands of miles of wire with insulation then Godaparcha started to dry up they started to clear the rainforests of Borneo and Malaysia and Vietnam of Godaparcha until the fucking tree nearly went extinct 
they completely eradicated all the natural resources of it and the trees take ages to grow. And just by the time when the world was running out of gutta percha, plastic got invented. They made plastic from petrol and all of a sudden gutta percha wasn't needed anymore. You had this new synthetic plastic that you could make as much of as you want from fossil fuels and now this insulated wires and this made cups. But before plastic, we had gutta percha. One of the most important natural resources in the world. A fucking household name. Which was everywhere, and it sounds like a word I made up. It just disappeared. And what it reminds me of today are minerals like lithium or coltan. Right now, we have to turn away from fossil fuels, and that's what's happening. But in order for us to move to a green energy, solar panels, batteries, we need these rare earth minerals like coltan and lithium. And there's not an awful lot of it. There's only so much. Now, what would have happened to the world if plastic hadn't have been invented? If the world relied upon gutta percha, these trees that had been practically made extinct they're only recovering in the wild now but they'd made this tree extinct and then went oh fuck there's none left and we need to lay all these cables what the fuck are we going to do it's just by sheer luck that plastic was invented from petrol sheer luck what do we do when we run out of lithium or run out of coltan civilization better hope that someone invents something that takes their place so i started the podcast speaking about synchronicity And that whole journey there about how without this little strange natural plastic that came from a tree, colonisation wouldn't have happened to the the degree that it happened. And I got all that from the handle of a little dagger in an antique shop. But where does the synchronicity come in? The strange little coincidence that I can take meaning from. Well, I went into this antique shop because I'd been in the dentist it's a couple of doors down. But I found out that gutta percha still exists today. But the only use we have for it is in dentistry. Small amounts of gutta percha are used during the process of root canal. Other than that, it's practically obsolete and nearly extinct. And that's a nice little bit of synchronicity. A meaningful coincidence. And all of the meaningful coincidences I mentioned in this podcast... I don't think they're supernatural. I don't view it as a type of magic. I view it as my brain's ability to find stories and meanings and patterns in things when I'm calm enough and present enough and emotionally regulated enough to explore my day with curiosity and safety. All right, that was this week's podcast. My voice is a tiny bit hoarse. I really enjoyed that podcast. That was a lot of fun. I can't wait to come back to you next week. The evenings are getting slightly longer. Just ever so slightly. And there's the promise of hope. February's a cunt. March is a cunt. Very windy, cold months. But they have that promise of hope, that little bit of brightness. And I can't wait to smell the buds of spring in late March. 
All right, dog bless, go fuck yourselves. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 